What's up, crafties? Welcome to another edition of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show focused exclusively on Magic the Gathering Arena. I'm Arjuna, one of your hosts, joined by another host, Kovac Go Blue. How are you doing today, CGB? I'm in a world champ kind of mood. I, I feel like a champion, you know? I just uh, Heck yeah, man. Riding the high of the power that we got to watch on display. Dude, after that freaking marathon hosting party you did, you should feel like a champ, dude. How's your voice doing? It's weird. It hasn't really... I can tell it hasn't fully recovered because I don't think about it like moment to moment, day to day. But as soon as I sit down and start recording the intro to a video, like it hits. Like I feel it right yep. away when I go into that voice. I'm like, oh... Oh, yeah, I got I got scars. They haven't healed yet. That was a lot of talking. I'm taking this week off of streaming. Today's usually streaming day. Didn't stream today. Didn't stream Tuesday. Hopefully back to normal next week. Good for you, buddy. Yeah, that's the thing about voices is that you use them all the time. So sometimes you just want to take a week off of talking. Can't actually do that, especially when you're here on the Arena Craft podcast. So anyway, but uh, I had a hell of a good time with you and all of the various cool kids and crafties who tuned in for that event. Yeah, dude, it was so great. I mean, I just heard the sentiment everywhere of people being like, it was so great watching Worlds, kind of had that like old school competitive magic vibe to it. We had a number of competitors really bringing the fire, including the champion Yuta Takahashi, arguably the most fired up person in that 16. Really incredible to see him just show up and take down the tournament. So first of all, big congratulations to Yuta Takahashi showing up all of us losers who didn't vote for him. It was a tough choice. I mean, that was Indeed. a really tough choice. If if you had told me he was going to be the only Is It Dragons player, you know, if I'd had some knowledge before that vote about deck lists, I don't know. I'm I'm going to pat myself on the back a little because the thing I learned really fast trying out several of these world's lists on ladder was right away, like, how do you kill a Goldspan dragon? And, and sure enough, the two decks with four main deck Goldspan in them were considered like the rogue decks of the tournament. There was only one Gruel Aggro. There was only one Is It Dragons. And they met in the finals. Like, People mm-hmm. didn't show up to handle 4X main deck Goldspan Dragon. The, the removal just didn't line up for them. It's almost like you get around to that part of the meta where like, you know, it's like stage one is that Goldspan's really good. Stage two is that a bunch of these other decks come in. Stage three is that you start teching to build all of these other decks. And then stage four is like, oh, whoops, Goldspan Dragon's still really good. And we weren't really counting for it. So, yeah, your your yeah. meme on Twitter was A plus. Always has been Goldspan Dragon. <laughs> I, yeah, I loved that, and I think that specifically it was Ren and Seven, right? Like, because mm, that was yeah. step one of the format. Is oh wait, Ren and Seven is nuts and really great against Goldspan Dragon. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we'll we'll dive into all of that, man. There's there's a lot of news this past week. Definitely want to talk about the world's Mata game. I feel like it behooves us to just quickly cover the bans that happened in. His historic since that's another pretty big piece of news well okay the first the first piece of news around bans is what do they ban in standard cgb oh lots of stuff they banned <laughs> pretty much every kind of mid-range black deck has been officially banned from the format by blood on the snow banned <laughs> all blood on the snow <laughs> copies have been banned all uh valky uh ha- have has Oof. been completely banned just completely yeah. illegal to play that card renin seven is soft banned you can get away with it as like a sideboard pivot strategy in green aggro and on that note storm mm. the festival is completely utterly banned Oof. <laughs> because yeah. what's not banned is 
Aaron's epiphany. Yep, it's uh, Aaron's epiphany is shaping up to be kind of like the bone crusher giant of the formats, like the gatekeeper of the formats, kind of deciding what you can and can't play in its own quiet little foretold way. Yeah, proving to be... It's interesting, man. I don't know if you remember, but way back in the day when uh, certain crafty asked us about band predictions in the format, I threw out Oren's Epiphany as uh, the card that I could see potentially getting abused and banned in the future. And I'm still waiting. I'm kind of curious if Epiphany is going to end up being like the um, agent of treachery, right? Mm. Of this particular meta game where mm. like it's going to stick around, it's going to stick around, it's going to stick around. And finally, one day, they're just going to freaking ban the thing because everyone's so tired of it. What do you think about that? I think that that's one way that it could go if they banned Epiphany. It wouldn't surprise me at this point. I think it's proven to be powerful and annoying. I, I think that it does keep a lot of decks completely off contention. On the other hand, I've heard a lot of people come back that they liked Michael J's take on this podcast about basically, you know, if you get rid of Epiphany, then now like blood on the snow is everywhere and the games take forever and something's got to be the best you know something has to be the ceiling at least epiphany keeps everything very aggressive and kind of moving to this place it keeps power in blue which is a place where power is popular quite honestly a lot of very good and talented players like playing formats where blue is good that is something that's proven over time a lot of people look back on Cobblade. it was like the, one of the most broken formats ever but everybody lo like nowadays like all the best players were playing it and winning in it. It, it was a very skill-testing format. Hey, I, I could see both. I say ban it because I like content. And nothing, yeah. nothing's better for content than metagame shakeups because you can revisit the things that you tried in week one. Some of them were not quite good enough because of this thing. Some of them looked amazing until you discovered this thing was the thing. And then mm. you get to revisit that stuff all over again, as opposed to me trying to come up with completely new original material every single day. I can kind of restudy things because the format changed. So I hope that happens. But on the note of format change, they did address Allrun's Epiphany and Asika's Chariot in the ban announcement. The verbiage was something along the lines, paraphrased to, let's wait till Crimson Vow. I, what card? What could they print in Crimson Vow that would push Allrun's freaking epiphany out of the meta? It, I mean, is this going to be the most aggro set in history? Are there going to be like 2-1 and 3-1 one drops for red and black? Like, what, what is it going to take? I mean, we could very well see like a Rakdos aggro list show up. We could also see a couple more werewolves show up to just kind of fill in the blanks around that deck. Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. But yeah, I mean, I I'm also kind of scared of the implications there as well. Okay, so here's one of my hot takes is that I wouldn't be surprised if they bring Madness back as a mechanic yeah. in that set. Sure. We've seen a fair amount of setup for it with cards like the Celestis, for example. We've also, you know, had this is an interaction I think would be really cool. We've had several creatures printed with ward opponent discards a card. How sweet would it be to freaking exploit your opponent's ward? Okay. Like, <laughs> okay, doesn't that sound fun? So, which part I'm, of this stops Epiphany? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, well, we're getting there. We're getting there. Okay, right? okay, okay. So I remember back in the Shadows of Innistrad days, they had these decks that were like, they were like aggro decks, but they were kind of like low mid range aggro decks, the kind of decks that were looking to kill you on turn like five or six, right? And um, I could see a return to that kind of a deck showing up and being the kind of deck which is just very closely racing against these is it lists. To answer your question, I also don't feel particularly confident that like 
just the new meta is going to like change things up enough. And, and, you know, even if it does, it's still an obnoxious combo, right? The Galvanic Aurens combo, it feels bad. There's that aspect to it as well. Like whether or not it feels, you know, balanced in the competitive meta game or whatever, like it's just one of those combos that I think people are going to get really tired of. As a, as a long-winded way of answering your question, no, I, I don't feel particularly confident that's going to solve the problem. Maybe there's a cycle or maybe just one or two of these of like five mana, five, five, something haste. And they all say, your opponent can't cast instants or sorceries until your next turn or something like that. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Just time Could walk be. the time walk decks. You know, maybe there's a, a lightning. Let's, let's put it on lightning bolt. One mana, three damage to target player. That player can't take extra turns for the rest of the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I've got it. Okay. It's going to be another questing beast. Okay. Oh, okay. It's going to have like seven relevant keywords. Okay. And, you know, and it's going to be like, aggressively statted and it's also just going to say your opponents can't cast spells from exile boom took care of it right there and there better format this is how power creep happens right this is like textbook how power creep happens <laughs> yeah. we improved the format by making the last deck that you all hated bad by printing cards that were so good that you're forced to play them and it's all about who has them first and on time <laughs> yeah no that's yeah. it they're just going to reprint oko problem solved let's go what would an Oko deck look like with, okay, we're going down a deep <laughs> rabbit hole, but I'm, I, I'm like, I'm going to play Oko and I'm going to play Auron's Epiphany and I'm going to yeah, take extra maybe. turns to make extra Elks. Yeah, yeah. team of Elks. That'd be Let's busted. Go. That's busted. I am skeptical, basically. Um, and I do agree that like whatever modification you could make to the format, which would make it feel okay, is probably going to be problematic in its own way. So I guess, you know, we'll see how the chips fall there. I do think that like before they printed Galvanic uh, Iteration, and I guess you could, I don't know, like Sultai Ultimatum, that's kind of debatable how, how really broken that was. But there were plenty of checks in the format, such as Rogues and etc. And that was one of the most busted formats of all time. So I think there are plenty of ways to beat that just based on the, the basic power level of the format. But I feel like apart from Sultai Ultimatum, we haven't really had Auron's Epiphany looking broken in any other decks. I think it was always like a pretty fair looking card for the most part. And especially in the standard 2022, I think it was felt like a very well-balanced card to me. Definitely one of the top-end cards of the format, but it was also one of the most expensive cards in the format. So, you know, that was kind of fair deuce there. So what do you think about this? You know, people saying, oh, well, it's really Galvanic Iteration is the problem. Maybe if we ban that card, things will go back to normal. Galvanic Iteration's messed up. Yeah, like, it's like, a pretty busted card. If there is... A reasonably powerful instant or sorcery for the rest of time, Galvanic Iteration is providing a cheap double shot of copying it. And there's always people who want to point out that Teach by Example, you know, I was playing Teach by Example in Standard 2022. I can't believe people didn't figure this out before. And it, it's totally, sorry, I, I've got this like impression of what my comments sound like in my head. And it's probably <laughs> completely inaccurate, but it works for me, especially when I'm snarky. Um, but I, it does, uh, like Galvanic Iteration being a two-shotter for one card on that effect is, it's so hard to play through in a long game. Like, it's bad enough that you can just do the thing on turn eight. But what you don't remember about Galvanic Iteration is it makes 
every turn after turn eight miserable because mm. at any point they can go galvanic iteration galvanic iteration and you have to dissipate it or you have to test of talents it and even then with that on the stack because it's an instant you can cast your other copy of galvanic iteration and it, it's it's a mess like the cards flashback ability and the fact that's an instant i think keep that card really messed up and i would prefer it didn't have those things and if it got banned it would be a tough case to make right because it wasn't in the it wasn't in the world championship deck list. It wasn't in the finals of the world championship. It's not definitively crucial uh, necessarily to is it, which can be built in a lot of different ways. Like Epiphany feels like it absolutely is. If it, without Epiphany, they have to play a different game, right? They have yeah. to really control the board or really push the tempo. Maybe they have to run like a few more dragons. Heaven forbid, you know? So I, I feel like... I, I would love to see Galvanic go because I just think that's a messed up card. I'd rather it didn't exist, but it does exist. And there's not a good case for banning it yet other than it feels like a problem and that it's going to check with every single instance or three for the rest of time. So uh, I think Epiphany. If something goes, it's going to be Epiphany, though. Yeah, well, we'll keep an eye on it. I'm sure everyone playing Standard will keep an eye on it. They don't but, have a choice. Uh, yeah, so let, let's get on to the cards that were actually banned and are restricted. So first of all, to the surprise of nobody, Brainstorm actually banned. Wild cards received. <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> so hopefully that means that with the next patch, it's not going to show up again somehow miraculously. You know, back for thirds. Oh, my God. Just... <laughs> How did they even think it was going to be fine with Dragon Rage Channeler in Historic Horizons and then Delver in Innistrad? That's the part that yeah. still throws me. When they banned it or when they suspended it, they still had this vibe of like, eh, we don't know you guys. We think Brainstorm here at Wizards of the Coast. We, we like Brainstorm a lot and think you guys are just being too whiny. <laughs> it was kind of how I read that announcement. And it's like, how? How? It was yeah. not going to be okay ever. Totally agree. Cards messed up, obviously. So they finally gave it the boot, you know, good on them, but really they should have just banned it to begin with. Now let's talk about two other cards. So Tybalt's Trickery has gotten the ban, the official ban. Get it out of Historic. Of course, some people think that it died for uh, Throws of Chaos's sins, but regardless, I think we can all agree Tybalt's Trickery, stupid card, annoying deck to play against, finally gets the boot. From Historic. Now, here's a question I have for you, CGB. Uh, I don't know how much Historic you've played lately, but I imagine that when you have jumped into the queues, you're probably playing best of one. And when you have been playing best of one, it's probably been pretty dominated by that combo deck, right? Well, if you play for an hour, you'll play it at least a few times. Like, mm -hmm. so yeah, and the games are so fast that it's like you queue up against it again in no time. It, it's yeah. like you you blink your eyes and, oh, I guess we're doing this again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. trickery in, in best of one, very, very popular. In best of three, actually popular because they made a sideboard mm. plan around shifting ceratops and like mm. stupid stuff like that. Just go, just out. Yeah. Never should have been a thing, got to be a thing. Let's be done with that. Let's move on. Uh, Throws of Chaos is also stupid. I just want to be clear about that. Yeah, I was kind of wondering whether the problem's actually solved, right? Throws of Chaos just seems like another card that's just going to be a problem at some point. I don't know what could be as bad as Trickery, but they'll find it eventually, you know? Eventually. Yeah. Kind of a card that's just designed to be broken. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. And none of the arguments about like, oh, it's a fast format, it's a four draw, blah, blah, blah. None of that just really, I don't know, it doesn't matter, right? Like, I feel like when the combo is powerful enough, people find a way. 
combo finds a way. Is magic ever really meant, though, to be over on turn four? Really? Like, would that, would anybody actually want to watch or enjoy that? Like, I, I understand being like way ahead on turn four, but when you're talking mm. about two players in a competitive environment, we had to travel across the country. We shuffled up. We sat down. I, I know I'm off the arena here now, but I'm, I'm talking about magic as just something that people want to engage with, like competitive magic. Like we got to watch at Worlds, right? Do you want to go through all that pomp and circumstance to play a game where two people try to interact with each other, but the game's just over on turn four? Like, not really. That shouldn't be yeah. the normal case. I agree. And it's especially, it's one thing for it to happen in a format like modern or legacy or in, even vintage when there's plenty of counterplay, there's plenty of powerful other things that can be going on. You've even got some kind of free counter spells that can get into the mix, all that kind of stuff. When you're dealing with a format like historic, which really doesn't have a lot of counterplay still to this stuff, yeah, it starts to feel pretty frustrating, I would say. And here's the other stupid thing is that you, you can't even deal with the problem with just a good old thought seize, right? I think thought seize was supposed to be one of these cards in historic that checks stupid decks like this. And yeah, throws of chaos just neatly sidesteps that little, little problem. Yep. It, why? It's man? a messed up. It's why? a messed up card. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, they knew what they were doing when they printed that stupid card. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see how that all plays out. So uh, another banning, which now I've actually heard some controversy around this. Some people feel like maybe this was the wrong card to get banned, but memory lapse. Uh, and I guess it's actually restricted, right? They suspended. Haven't, they haven't suspended. Yeah. I always get my terminology confused there. Understand. So. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna keep an eye on this. This is actually a card I could imagine coming out of suspension at some point. I mean, I personally think the card is stupid and messed up, and I'm very, very glad to see it leave the format. What do you think about this card? I'm a blue mage. I like to counter spells. I like to keep my opponents from enacting their game plan. Memory lapse should be banned and never should have been printed in the first place. It's the dumbest counter spell ever made because mm. it's it's bad enough to get your thing countered. It takes away Probably the most beloved thing in Magic, which is, what could the next card be? It mm -hmm. kills the vibe. It's the most vibe-killing counterspell ever. And it, you would think, as a control mage, that I'd be totally into that, but I'm not. Because part yeah. of what keeps people from scooping and let me enjoy doing what I'm doing and make what I'm doing interesting is hope. Hope that mm. they'll draw the perfect card. Hope that they'll get out of it. Like, I want Magic to be exciting. Nothing's mm -hmm. worse than memory lapse when you're missing a land drop. Like, why play? Yeah. I don't want to play yeah. any more magic today after that happens. Like, uh, also, yeah. it's so good. It's one and a blue and it can target any spell. There's no serious mm. downside. Not mm -hmm. really. So why would you run any other counter spell that's an option in the format before maxing on memory lapse? You don't. It just mm -hmm. dominated the space completely. It's a four of in every blue deck other than Tybalt's Trickery, if you even count that as an existing deck. And uh, I think it never should have happened. It, it was particularly egregious in Rogues. Historic mm -hmm. Rogues, like, because then they can let you draw it or mill it, depending on, you know, just how miserable they yeah. want you to be. But I'm still going to say that that never, like, I am still to this day shocked it was in the archive. Mm -hmm. And it should have, no, just don't reprint this experience why would you it makes no sense you know literal counter spell i think would have been a better include in historic yes and they banned that yeah the, but yep. this memory lapse card is fine easier to cast and way more tilting yeah i mean think about like 
So these Jeskai control lists have been playing, what is it, the Archmage's Charm, yeah. right? The, the triple blue card. Yeah. So clearly they feel capable of coughing up a bunch of blue at some point. But I still think that double blue on turn two is quite a squeeze in a three-color deck. I mean, there's just no way around it, right? It's like, you can probably find a way to get your Archmage's Charm out at some point in the first, like, four to six turns of the game. But having double blue on turn two is just, that's a strong squeeze, no matter how good your mana is. And so I just think that if they switched those two out and kind of saw how it played from there, I think that'd be a more interesting format. I think the problem with Counterspell is that Similar to Memory Lapse, any dedicated blue deck will now just run four and not think about the options in that space. And as much as I don't necessarily love it all the time, because nothing feels worse than holding a disdainful stroke when a negate would have saved you, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, those those things happen. But I, I think that the... I think those choices are important. I think deciding how many spell pierce and how many negate and how many essence scatter is actually, it should be part of the puzzle of building decks, not just, Mm. all right, and I have my four counter spells and my four Archmage's charms and everything important that costs four or more mana will never resolve against me. No, I think that's that's a really good point. They've, for example, done a very good job of diversifying removal spells lately Mm -hmm. to the degree to where none of them just feels like an auto include of four. Even the devastating fatal push you know has its limitations and uh, you got to think carefully about how many of those you want to run if you do run four of them you need to have a plan for turning it on yeah i think they've done a really good job with the removal in historic and i agree with you the counter spell thing it's just it, it is it's egregious memory lapse miserable card i'm very very happy to see it leave historic hopefully never to return i can't imagine what would bring it back can you yeah nah don't something else broken <laughs> like <laughs> but, blue decks are going to be bad anytime soon given what's in historic yeah. it's just not going to happen yeah yeah no totally agree that's the other thing as well it's just a card that looks good in any deck right you can put that in like an auras deck you can put it in an aggressive is it deck like you can it's just it's a good card very good card all right so that's the update on historic and the non-bands and standard almost so this this leaves us with the post-world metagame. Do you want to say anything about the nerfing and buffing of cards? Oh, you know what? I did actually want to cover that, so I'm glad that you reminded me, right? So they've announced, and this actually was pretty exciting for me, they've announced the first round of tweaks on the digital-only cards, and there's quite a few changes, including they've basically nullified these Vesperlark combo decks by modifying both the Planeswalker, what's Davriel his name? Davriel and Soulbroker and Davriel's yep. Withering. Yep, exactly. So yeah, so now they can only target your opponent's stuff, which makes them a lot worse. And uh, yeah, what do you think about this, CGB? <laughs> it, it makes them worse in that they can't do g- degenerated stupid Vesperlark loops, but they hopefully will play more as what they were originally designed to do, which is be mm-hmm. like, permanent nerfs to Arclight Phoenix. I actually think it's a clever way to get around banning Vesperlark, which is just something I thought would have to happen. And I Mm -hmm. haven't really been interested in in Historic very much since the first time I did like a turn three, just draw the game for no reason. (laughs) So getting rid of that is cool. 
it's done in a way that I didn't expect, which is they just said, okay, we made these digital only cards. We're going to change them. I, I think it's a different topic. Maybe we can get to it after we have this discussion about the cards that got changed, but it does it pull me back into historic or does it make me more interested in these historic only digital cards? So that's a different discussion we can have after, but I, I'm glad they did it. I think Davriel's mm-hmm. Withering is still a really good card. Yeah, I, they're both kind of sweet. The main question I have for you is, are you yay or nay on the whole, it's a digital only card and therefore we're going to treat it like a digital only card and we're just going to modify it to balance the power level because all of the paper boomers are freaking out there with their pitchforks on the front lawn at midnight, rabble rousing, you know, just trying to burn the whole house down because they hate it so much. It's not magic. This is not what magic should be. What do you think about that? philosophical argument. I think that people will have what appeals to them in magic and they get very passionate about it. And most people don't understand the position that others have about what they love about magic or why very often. It's just much easier to come at it from what you like. And uh, I'm I'm no different. I'm paper boomer, played paper for 20 some years before arena existed. And I, I think that you have to decide kind of what historic means to you. We're the Arena Craft podcast, so historic is a format created for Arena. It's now introducing cards that are only on Arena, and they can change at any time. That's weird. That feels very different from Magic. Not only that, these cards are getting like injected directly into historic. They don't have a standard format history to go on. One thing that I've learned that I absolutely love about Magic is seeing a card go through their time and standard and seeing whether or not they mm. like how they line up in that format before graduating to see if they can go on to play empowered formats or they just fade away. I once spent wild cards on that old card and I never played it again. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And it, it's a bit of a turnoff for me when I see cards that never played through standard being very relevant in these formats because Mm. I feel a distance from those cards. I never made that connection. Like I, I didn't play them through their standard time and that, that messes with me. So I want arena to have a format that is friendly to like standard of old kind of experience. I want like a pioneer, you know, Mm. or I want a classic historic. And it seems like historic right now, the only chance for like an eternal format here is this Wild Wild West, anything goes, everything's busted, and these cards that you've never seen before anywhere have just been printed and then changed since probably the last time you logged in. Because keep in mind, a lot of players are not as enfranchised as you, me, or the people who listen Mm. to this podcast. They just log in and they play. So imagine the feeling of being a player and logging in and playing a deck from three months ago that rotated. Imagine just logging in and playing your Sultai Ultimatum deck. You queue it up in play queue and what do you do? You're now playing historic instead of standard because of the rotation, which you just clicked through all those prompts, didn't feel like reading today. And you come up against cards you've never seen before and they're just Mm -hmm. busted and they're destroying you. Yeah, that's a good point, man. I mean, I forget. (laughs) I forget that there's like, a whole tier of player that regularly has experiences like that. You know, it's so far removed from where your mind is and where my mind is. I mean, I've definitely had those moments of like, you submit the wrong deck list in the wrong queue. And you, you know, I mean, even as an experienced player, you you have those moments occasionally where you're like, whoops, clicked on the wrong thing getting trounced right now and it does it's kind of jarring and maybe in maybe in paper you do buy the cards maybe you have the latest set and you're still like but 
where the hell did this Davriel's withering come from? And why does it work this way? This, mm. what the heck mm-hmm. is happening? Like that, I don't know how common an experience that is, but I, I mean, I, I think it's worth being concerned about. Mm. What do you think? I mean, are you yay or nay on this? I'm mostly yay on it. I mean, I agree that it feels weird. It feels definitely incongruous. Like we have this small class of cards which behave differently from anything else in Magic. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I am definitely pro arena trying new things. I'm pro arena like being a testing ground. I mean, historic is clearly a test format, right? I don't know what they're testing for, but it's just like, you're right. It's like the wild, it's like the Petri dish. It's like a, it's like a mad scientist format, really. And I'm kind of cool with that. I think that there should be at least one place where that can happen. And I mean, Magic Online exists for everyone who doesn't want to deal with that, right? And hates graphics. (laughs) And has taste. (laughs) Hey, you know what? If you're you're old school enough, you're fine with spreadsheet simulation. I'm old school enough and I still hate it. I'd still rather play duels. Anyway, I stick up for that crowd because I think that Magic players have deserved a better digital product than Magic Online since basically Magic Online was invented. Yeah, I so mean, I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep I, fighting for them. I do agree that Magic Online is a it's a curiously apt illustration of Wizards' many failings, right? You can't really aggregate more of Wizards' failings into one product <laughs> than that. We're making some people so mad, but you've got to <laughs> those, those those people have long since learned that they just can't have nice things and you deserve better, you know? You need to leave yeah. that abusive relationship and get cuz you deserve better. Uh, anyway, Do you remember a few years ago, they released like the big update on Magic Online and it was like the menu was a little cuter and like that was it. That was Windows 95 (laughs) going to Windows 98. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like when they were installing the update, you had like the little like file going over to the folder, like driver installation happening and crap. (laughs) Oh my gosh. We just reached the year 2000. Let's let's keep, um, let's cover the cards that change. And then I want to ask you a question about the bands. So Uh, what's the next, we were talking about the Davriels one. Uh, That is the nerf, unquote, the change that could be perceived as a negative. The next one is that they took Faceless Agent and they made it a 2-2 instead of a 2-1. This is the creature that conjures a card of the most prevalent creature type in your deck into your hand. So like a good little tribal card. They buffed it. You know, they want to make it a little better. Not bad, right? Yeah, I don't have a ton of commentary on these because I don't play a lot of these decks, but I thought I'll just throw it over to him and maybe he'll say the next card. What? what, what <laughs> I, next I just card? realized I don't actually have the announcement in front of me. Oh, okay. So I, I can keep here we trying. go. I, I just pulled it up though. So um, yeah, Faceless Agent, honestly never seen this card in play apart from maybe in uh, Jumpstart. So let's talk about the next one. Sarkin Wanderer to Shiv's second ability is now plus one from plus zero uh and is it nice that they don't actually link you to the cards in the announcement i know right isn't that really like wait what the heck is this card anyway so it conjures a shiv and dragon into your hand okay so yeah i mean plus one draw shiv and dragon it's 
really cool ability. As a zero, it didn't help push it forward because the minus two is three damage to a target or something like that. So it kind of took away from... It's obviously a casual card, I think. I don't think that we conjure Shivan Dragons in competitive play too much, but I think make, giving it a plus does make it more of a sideboard option for a game that goes mid-range if one of those ever exists again. Yeah, okay, so just to be clear, it's used to be a zero ability and now it's a plus one loyalty ability. Yeah, I mean, eh, meh. Does that really change the playability of this card? This is clearly still like a casual, it's a might little, show up in cube. It's a little better. I think that if you're going to push something like changing your design for arena only card that's never getting played in arena because it's not good enough is a fine move. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mythic, yeah. man. They should They should keep moving the dials on some of these mythics that are unplayable until they're a little playable. Sure. I, I totally agree with that. Lastly, Subversive Acolyte. They did quite a number of tweaks on this card to try to make it more playable. It's still garbage in my opinion, but it now costs 1B, is a 2-3 instead of a 2-2, and the toughness increases from becoming human or Phyrexian reduced by 1. Okay, sorry, it wasn't a full buff. Um, They I wanted know, it man. to become a 5-5 five, five as a callback to Phyrexian Negator because it has a yeah. lot of the abilities of Phyrexian Negator. So they changed like its base and messed with its adjustments. And I still have never played against this card. <sighs> You know, yeah, and I don't think I, that's going to change. Yeah, I watched someone play versus it on the stream. The opponent didn't seem to realize that that Phyrexian clause included the Phyrexian downside and uh, proceeded to sacrifice their entire board. So um, yeah, there you go. Subversive Acolyte, everyone. Subverting playability since it was printed. So the changes apart from the Davriel cards, I think are very minor and are probably going to affect Almost nobody, but I'm glad that they're messing with that space myself, and I'm interested to see where it all goes. Me too. So the question I want to ask, are you more likely to play Historic now? Because of the bannings and the yeah. and the changes? No, I'm not. And for me, it's... Okay, so I think that Modern Horizons 2 is a sweet set, and overall I'm glad that it came to Historic. I think it really shook it up, brought some new power to the format, introduced new archetypes. All of that's fine. It's just I don't feel like playing that kind of magic at the moment. I think it's like it's a little too lean. It's a little too mean. I am personally I, I've been really enjoying standard like that's been the power level of magic that I've wanted to play recently. And the particular knobs and dials that are tweaked in Historic at the moment that it's like it's just fast enough, just annoying enough, just combo-y enough, just whatever enough that I just feel really turned off it recently. I am, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I'm in the same boat. Like, they're introducing cards to Historic because they know it has to compete with Eldraine and War of the Spark, which impacted every format when they landed. Yeah. And that power level, I'm so sick of it. I don't want to yeah. play that anymore. And when Eldraine, you know, when basically since Standard 2022 arrived and then Rotation happened, I'm much happier in Standard. I think it really is just understanding what you enjoy about Magic. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy longer games with more decisions. And you can complain about Epiphany, but I'd gladly take this meta over Eldraine oh, forever. God. Yeah, it's yeah. still a big improvement yeah. in my world. I, I think sometimes it just comes down to like, what cards do you feel like playing against? And I've always been kind of on the edge of Historic for this reason, because Historic is like where cards you hated go to keep being hateable, right? Yes. 
And so, <laughs> I mean, there's only so many Nissas who can shake the world before you just get kind of tired of that card. And okay, maybe that card hasn't been a big player lately, but it sure was for a long time still an historic and a Teferi hero of Dominaria, just still doing a lot of freaking heroing up in Dominaria. Kind of tired of that card, to be honest. And, uh, oh, look, there's a Narset. That's a you know, nightmare that I'd finally worked my way out of. So yeah, that's, that's it more than anything. I just, or even, you know, new cards like Dragon's Rage Channeler. It's cool. It's new. I know what it does. I don't need to play against it to know that I hate it and don't really feel like playing that particular game. So that's kind of where I am. I do feel like so one of the cool things about Historic is that they're clearly trying to expand the palette of playable, powerful decks. And I feel like eventually one of those archetypes is going to come along that I really enjoy playing, and that will kind of pull me back into it. So that's the appeal of Modern, in my opinion, is that like, okay, Modern is like this really busted format. There's a lot of annoying stuff in it. There's a lot of really powerful eye-rolly cards. The cool thing about Modern is it's just a very broad format. And so it's like, if you dig deep enough into the archive, you're going to find something that's at least semi-competitive that you enjoy playing. And then you can just, you know, kind of have at it for as long as you feel like. And so I think what it perhaps lacks in like a diversity of length of game, for example, like you get in standard, some games are short, some games go really long. I find that interesting. Um, you know, you might lack some of that in, in a format like modern, but I mean, you can't like you you can't trash the variety of the format. There's just so many different things to try. So I think that okay, historic is like modern junior or like modern light. It's like modern with training wheels on it. But I do think that they are like pushing to make it feel more like that format. I mean, obviously, Modern Horizons printing that into the format is pretty strong move in that direction. And so I think when the diversity is great enough in historic, I probably will feel more motivated to play in it. I love something you said there, that picking a format is about choosing what you want to play against. I think mm. that so many people look at Magic as, I want to play what I want to play. <laughs> you mm. know what I mean? Yeah. But it's true. If you want to feel successful playing Magic, it's mostly about w choosing what you want to play against and kind of how to beat it, especially if you're going to play mid-range or control. Maybe aggro doesn't have to worry about those things very often, and maybe that's why it's popular. But if you're going to play mid-range or control or select a deck based on wanting to have some kind of a successful event or ladder session, choosing what you're going to play against is probably more important than choosing what you're going to play. So I just really like that. Just wanted to highlight that for people out there who think that because I don't know how many salty messages I see every day between Discord mm -hmm. and uh, YouTube comments and Twitch or wherever of somebody just getting mad that the, the day isn't going the way they wanted to it playing magic. And it like I wonder if they entered that, you know, thinking about what they want to play against as opposed to just mm -hmm. I just want to play and do my thing. Because, I mean, think about it like. I think what often happens in Magic is that, yeah, you wake up and there's like one deck that you're really excited to play that day. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you have multiple decks you're excited to play, hey, I mean, you're a lucky Magic player at that point. But oftentimes, you know, you got kind of one thing that you're stuck on or an idea that's rattling around in your head and that's kind of what's motivating you. And yeah, the entire rest of what you're playing is everybody else's deck. And exactly, it's kind of like you said, it's like, that's the biggest puzzle to solve, right? Because it's like you build your deck, you tweak your deck, you do whatever with your deck, but most of the time is spent trying to solve the puzzle of how do I beat my opponent's deck. And uh, if they're presenting a puzzle that's really boring to you, 
you're going to get tired of it really quickly, as we found in Rogue's standard, as we found in Eldraine's standard, as we found in Soltai Ultimatum standard, you know? Like, you start the game, and in the back of your mind, you're like, I don't feel like solving this anymore. I already know that I, it's like, I already know that I hate hamburgers. Why, why am I getting served hamburgers again? So anyway, I, oh. I think maybe you answered the question yourself, but do you have any final thoughts on that for like your own motivation in Historic? Yeah, I'm waiting for it to feel like something I want to get into. It just doesn't like injecting it with these cards that never went through standard does seem to take away from it for me. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm kind of waiting for a little more. I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm waiting for a different experience. I keep on watching old Pro Tour footage of like standard, extended, uh, block even. And I'm watching like those formats. And I'm like, I want to play those decks again. But I know if I play that mm. in historic, I'm just going to get destroyed. <laughs> and uh, that's, yeah. you know, I'm just going to feel bad because I know when I build a deck for historic, I'm going to try to get that nostalgia vibe and that's going to fail. Uh, as soon as somebody plays a cat in an oven, I'm I'm back to standard. But getting rid of yeah. trickery, I guess, is a good first step. I'm yeah. just going to redirect this instead of putting a bow on it, because I feel like we could circular talk about why Historic isn't as appealing to us. Do you like Stranger Things? I have not watched it. Okay, then I guess this one's all up to me. For those who are interested out there, the October super drop in Secret Lair is Stranger Things, and they have now put the Stranger Things characters on cards. And you can decide whether or not this is gas or ass for yourself, viewer. As a viewer of Stranger Things myself, I I will say this. I want that clue token. There is a sweet clue token for people who like the show are totally going to get it. I want that clue token. The rest of it, I could take it or leave it. Isn't that funny how so many things in Magic come down to, like, the lands or the tokens or, like, all of this kind of window dressing of the game ends up being, like, some of the the hottest spice? It's because it's safe. Cards will go up and down in playability unless they're utterly broken, uh, depending Mm. on meta and format, and they'll rotate. But, like, clues are always going to be clues. And if you have cards in your commander deck or in your permanent decks that make clues, then, yeah, sweet clue tokens will always make you smile. Good basic Mm -hmm. lands will always make you smile. That's that's why they Mm -hmm. kind of hold that value. Mm -hmm. Speaking of sweet tokens, what's the current status on awesome CGB tokens that people can get in the world? Well, right now, the Paper Wolf token is available at coolstuffinc.com. Promo code CGB5 will get you a single wolf token included with your order. Boom. Nice. That's just ready. Although it's mirrored, so it looks funny. Shaggy boy (laughs) over there. So how about the metal tokens? Were those like a limited time only kind of a deal? They were. Yeah, the metal tokens, the metal shark tokens are going to, they're in production now, should finish by hopefully the end of this week by the time you hear this. Then they're going to ship to Cool Stuff Inc., then ship to the people who bought them. But it was a, like, we take this many orders and we print this many tokens. And that's, it was a limited time thing. But I think before Christmas, there will be another offering uh, for the wolf token this time. But I don't have enough info to make a full announcement. Okay, right on. Just didn't want to miss an opportunity to plug your awesomeness over there. I appreciate that. Yeah, indeed. A token gesture, as it were. Okay, so let's get to, you know, we've we've spoken about as long as most podcasts run, and we haven't even gotten to our main topic. Congratulations, CGB. We just pulled an arena craft on our audience. 
and uh, y'all know what we're about. So no surprises there. Let's come back to standard now, right? So we've had Worlds happened. We all watched it with bated breath, eyeballs glued to the monitor. Good times. What a sweet format. I mean, what a sweet tournament, really. And so it brings me around to this question of where do we go from here, right? What are our takeaways from Worlds? And how do we get prepared to do the next generation of slaying on the ladder? Considering the fact that the Alrens Epiphany combo is probably here to stay, for the next month at least. And, uh, you know, what do we do with that information? So the first thing that I wanted to just discuss briefly was what was successful at the tournament and why. Definitely do want to give you a pat on the back, CGB, for, you know, saying, you know, you you said something on the previous podcast like, ah, I think that this is a Dragon's List is you know, might end up being surprisingly favored or might end up performing better than people expect, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you you had kind of a prescient moment there. Now, was was that just entirely based on your experience of playing these dragons decks on the ladder? Or was that kind of more to that, that that was kind of informing that impression for you? It mostly was just picking up the decks of worlds, diving in like a net decking fanboy and losing to a lot of goldspan dragons when I did lose. It just seemed like they were a little bit narrow to goldspan plus a counterspell and that a lot Mm -hmm. of decks moved away from that strategy quite a bit. You saw Mm -hmm. like the Grixis Leer deck with a lot of like fading hopes, you know, you can fading hope a gold span dragon a few times. They'll be pretty happy to keep casting it. It, Mm -hmm. Like they can play that game quite a bit. So as far as what else kind of drove that, I, I think that the list was just very... It was very dedicated to what it wanted to do. The Dragon Egg also, just that cheap 04, that the aggro decks. When you're combating an Epiphany combo deck that's completely creatureless, you don't want to play a lot of removal. And we saw the white aggro decks at Worlds putting Brutal Cathar and Skyclave Apparition in the sideboard and playing Elite Spellbinder and Redain in the main and Maul the Skyclaves, trying to end the game, right? Because if they have the removal in that spot, they're too slow, they're too clunky. They're giving up equity and they're going to lose to a deck that's trying to take all the turns. Yeah. So when you have to trim those spots, a low opportunity cost card that can take over a game in the creature spot becomes insanely powerful. And that's what Dragon Egg turned out to be. Just this very low opportunity cost two drop that you can also just block with. So it kind of gains you some life and keeps you alive against aggro. And it just turns into this thing that takes over the game. It used to be that you have to have your gold span dragon down on the battlefield and then you cast your epiphany. And if you still have your gold span dragon, that's kind of the the combo because it carries you to the victory when you get your extra turn. But Smoldering Egg, when you cast Allrun's Epiphany, turns into something that can often just end the game on its own, either by gunning down that battlefield that before you couldn't deal with or by swinging in and going direct damage for the face. So I think that the four smoldering eggs were a huge, like a huge reason for its success. Yeah, it's just interesting because I think a lot of people were hemming and hawing about how many of each of those cards to play and how many to put in the main and how many to put in the sideboard and stuff. And I love Takahashi just being like, let's go dragon tribal smash face. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I like about it is it's just a good reminder that this is kind of like one of those old axioms of magic, that there are no bad threats, only bad answers. And I think that this deck really proves that so well, that like when you're running eight incredibly potent threats that can end the game pretty much at any point, it really does put the onus on your opponent to actually deal with them. 
And especially like when they're in this shell of a deck that can run cards like Test of Talents and Divide by Zero and all this other interaction, and especially that can generate that extra mana off of their dragons, it just puts such a squeeze on your opponent. Another thing that we all learned, and I couldn't I couldn't let this episode pass without making at least a passing mention of this. Another thing that we learned from streamer and main character of Twitch for a day, Zan Syed, was that Goldspan Dragon is actually very, very good against mono green. <laughs> do you <laughs> do you want to talk briefly about that particular little Twitter drama? Uh, I, I, I'd love to talk about it, but I'm down with you setting it up. Okay, so basically I start to hear like rumblings and see people making posts on Twitter. And this is what happens when you're on Magic Twitter is that you see a couple of posts that are kind of obliquely referencing something that happened without naming and stuff. And you start to be like, oh, who's got egg on their face today? Who stepped on the landmine? And it was Zan Syed who basically, I mean, he knew what he was doing, man, is all I got to say. He basically walked into like the roughest saloon in town, walked straight up to like the toughest looking person at the bar, slammed the pistol down on the table and said, you're wrong, idiot. And um, the (laughs) idiot in this case happened to be Pro Tour winner, highest performing MPL member, and at the time undefeated in the World's Championship, Andre Strasky. So Andre was committing apparently the the mortal sin of uh, leaving Burning Down the House in the sideboard against Mono Green and instead bringing in Goldspan Dragon. Actually had burned down the house, three copies in the main. And was taking them out for Goldspan Dragon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you make of that, right? Because, I mean, I can see... I can see why people in general would say, what are you doing boarding out your sweeper in an aggro matchup? So what what was Andre exploiting there? That's a great question because it... And I think it's honestly the right question because I think the reaction to the tweet was mostly built around, look, this content creating and also competitive player is basically telling the best the guy who's currently on top of the world championship that he's doing something wrong. And I think that that's where like people like to put people in pecking order, right? If you were mm, to place yeah. people at who's best in the world at something, Andre would be up here. Zan Syed, who is not in the world championships and is streaming a lot right now, would be somewhere below. And people yeah. really, really like to kind of create this tier list of like who's good at things, especially magic mm-hmm. players. And then people mm-hmm. saw somebody from down here telling somebody up here, do the thing, and they got all like, rah, 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 rah. The, the great question is what you just asked. Like, let's really talk about the why. And I mm-hmm. think that the best case is that, especially in post-board matchups, are board wipes good against mono green? For one thing, you're in the world championships, open deck lists. These are the best players in the world. Almost nobody is going to play their cards one, two, three, four, five and ignore the possibility of a board wipe. Mono green especially has a lot of things that are good against board wipes. Old growth troll, really good against board wipes because you can just Mm -hmm. make another four, four if you leave up two mana for the end step. Chariot, really good against Mm -hmm. board wipes. Ranger class, resilient Mm -hmm. against board wipes. Ren and seven. Faceless haven. Yeah. Still good (laughs) against board wipes, right? Mono green has inscription. It can make creatures that are bigger than a five, five which mm-hmm. not many decks can, and at a pretty low cost. They can do that on turn four pretty easily if they have a troll and they have an inscription. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons that a board wipe against a good player in a high-caliber tournament in a post-board game isn't going to be as effective. On the other hand, they basically, like Andre's 
strategy, from what I can tell, what the Czech House was doing was trying very specifically to take out most of their like race to combo stuff and try to win with Goldspan Dragon, try to pressure and win with Goldspan Dragon. Instead of being like, mm-hmm. I need to get to eight mana and put together the Galvanic Iteration and the Allruns Epiphany, I need to like do the old school thing of like slam a dragon, take one extra turn with an epiphany and end the game that way. And other than mm-hmm. that, I'm just going to play removal, delay, removal, delay, divide by zero, mm-hmm. kill a thing, kill a thing. And that was the strategy against green. And it proved to be effective. Andre did not lose to mono green, I believe, in the tournament. I, I know he mm-hmm. did not because he won 10 on day one. And he didn't play it on day on uh, 10 between day one and day right? two. And he didn't play yeah. it again during the yeah, seven. Oh, sorry. I'm I'm all so mixed yeah, up. seven zero on day one and didn't face mono green on day two, right? Is that yep? Okay, so yeah, I mean, just once again proving that, and you know, we've said this before, crafties, and we're going to come back to it that magic is more about plans than it is about cards, right? So it's not the fact that goldspan dragons better in the matchup than burning down the house. Let's not compare those two five drops. It's that. Andre Strasky and maybe the Czech house decided we want a different plan against this deck and their plan of having like, what's, I don't know, you could call it like aggro control, right? Or like maybe it's even kind of like mid range control, depending on how you choose to phrase it. Right. They just decided that a of all, if you have enough interaction and B at all, if you have like a strong enough threat, which can also generate more advantage then they just control the game that way. And here's the funny thing about Goldspan Dragon. Goldspan Dragon only hits you in chunks of four, but it feels like if it hits you twice, you're dead. It right? does, yeah. Like, <laughs> if someone plays a Goldspan Dragon, hits you once, and they untap with it and they hit you again, your chances of winning that game are just so low. So incredibly low. They have so many mana. They can cast Memory Deluge and cast the two cards they find. And that's assuming that they're not just taking an extra turn and beating you that way. But Sea of All, they usually side out their Blizzard Brawls. They're usually much lower on removal. So the dragon is much more likely to live, you know, when they side it in, uh, in the Checkhouse's case. So I just want to get that in there, too, of how these plans come together when it involves sideboarding in ways that you don't see in best of one or that you don't usually see on ladder because a lot of ladder is jamming games, trying things and playing kind of two dimensional chess. But when you have open deckless and you're at the world championships, we're in three dimensional chess now. You have a sideboard plan that takes into account their sideboard plan and tries to exploit it. Absolutely. Now, it's been interesting in the wake of worlds because I've I've seen various content creators streaming with the deck list. This is a dragon's deck list. Mm -hmm. And I've heard various pros talking about it. And the general message I hear from streamers is, eh, the deck's okay. And the general message I hear from all the pros is, oh my God, deck's busted, haven't lost with it yet. I think one of the things that this highlights, not to dig on the streamers, but it just highlights the fact that some deck lists are very, very difficult to play at the highest level. And what Yuta Takahashi proved to us was that this is a deck list which can compete at the highest level against the best players in the world. And you need to know what you're doing, basically. And I think that this is why it's so interesting to examine what kind of deck this is, because it has it's a hybrid plan deck list. So even like these turns combo lists, right? Like 
even if they're heavily boarding into a different configuration, it's like there's still some amount of chain to a particular plan that you have to be with that deck. It's just too in on the combo, right? And I think that Yuta Takahashi was like, I'm just going to spend the entire tournament in this mid-ground of like being this amorphous deck that can do a lot of different things. So the ability to correctly sideboard and to correctly identify your role in every game of every match is what allows someone to go all the way completely undefeated in standard, by the way. Didn't didn't drop a single match playing this deck list. And uh, I can almost guarantee you Crafty's on the ladder. You know, if you take this deck onto the ladder, you're probably not going to go 11-0 and 0 with it. Part of the reason is that you just have to be really world-class to play this deck at the top level. And it all comes down to, you know... All of the fundamentals of magic, figuring out what you need to do to survive, figuring out if you're the aggressor in the game, figuring out how the game's going to end, all of this kind of stuff. And so I think that like that's ultimately what gave Yuta Takahashi's deck the edge over some of these more like all-in decks was just the ability to like pivot so cleanly in so many different kinds of matchups. Yeah, strong agree. Cool. Okay, so let's, where are we left? Like, let's look at the other Epiphany decks in the format. I've definitely seen a number of people continue to play the Grixis deck. I think the Grixis deck has been exposed as not being one of the absolute top best decks in the format. I think it's still fine to play. I think it's a really sweet deck. I think it's really fun. And I think anyone who, you know, splashed out for those mythic Leas and crafted their, you know, three or four copies of the Celestis is still going to feel fine playing it. But I don't know. I don't expect this deck to stay around in the top tier slot in the format. What do you think? It's not getting played enough, I, to be mm. honest. Like, um, So I'm looking at the popularity on untapped.gg. Thanks mm-hmm. very much for giving us that premium account so we can check out this stuff to talk about untapped.gg. Yeah. And it's not in the top eight in today in popularity, okay. which, which is really weird that kind of a sweet brew shows up at Worlds and in best of three. I'm looking in best of three. I want to clarify that too. And it doesn't show up in the top eight of popularity. That's kind of weird, right? There's a Grixis Dragon deck ahead of it. Like, I'm I'm scrolling, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of confused. I think that there are parts about this deck that people generally, they turn off, right? They're looking mm-hmm. at a control deck with no counterspells in a format where they feel like that's necessary to fight All Runs Epiphany. Yeah. I, I think that some people just switch off when they see it, and they're like, this is a deck that's either too big brain or too weird for me to get my head around. And I think that the deck is better than that. So... Four pilots in a small field put up a 56% win rate with it. They went 57% against Is It Turn, 60% against Mono Green, and they never lost to Mono White. 100% mm. against Mono White. Yeah, good against Mono White for sure. Leer is a polarizing card, I've found. I can make a lot of videos showing how awesome Leer is. Usually when I make a video that I do very well with, I will see a trend on the ladder. Like, I I will tune into Untapped a few days later and I'll be like, yep, that's my list and that's the archetype trending up. When I make a Leer list, nothing. Crickets. People don't touch the card. And I I think it's just, I don't know, there's something about it that's like confusing and polarizing that they avoid. And I think it's because it does take the traditional control game plan and it turns it on its head that we're not going to win through always having counter spells. We're going to have to figure out how to interact with this card so that we can maximize its value. And we have to play this weird game where we're bouncing it to avoid removal and we're protecting our graveyard and we're not losing to Allrun's Epiphany, and we're staying alive against Mono Green and all this stuff. I don't know. It doesn't click with people. 
And and it is weird, but I see that trend. It, it actually feels good because I thought there was something wrong with me. I, I was playing that card on my channel being like, these decks are awesome. This card is amazing. It's busted. And then like nobody was picking up the decks that I was sharing. And then when it came out that it was in Worlds, I was like, yes, Lyra's finally going to get the love. And now here we are with a sweet deck from Worlds that did perform and got to the one one copy did get to the top four and nobody's playing it. What do you Brutal. think? What do you Brutal. think? I honestly think that like it's a case of I think that the deck is so left field that I think that it's just like people can't they can't get it into their skin that this is going to be like a pinnacle of the format. I think that it's like the play patterns are too different from what was established. I also think, okay, here's here's something that I want to say, which I knew this was going to happen and it annoyed me before it even happened, right? Is that you have the small field tournament, 16 players, not that many matches played total in the tournament, and like a deck doesn't make the top four or whatever or like one copy makes the top four and gets busted out or whatever and then i feel like the general populace is just like oh okay that deck's not good enough right <laughs> yeah and, i mean i just think like i knew that it was going to happen with this deck i knew that people are just going to be like oh well that deck can never be you know is it dragons or that deck can never be like this new team or aggro deck or whatever and like that's it's just not the takeaway right? It's so not the takeaway. Like that deck could easily have won the tournament. And so we have to remember that magic is about variance and magic is about luck and magic is about like, you know, maybe just that one person who you faced in the top four had like the Trump deck to beat your deck in that particular spot. Right. But it just could so easily have not ended up that way. So I honestly think that's part of it. Like it wasn't in the finals. And so a lot of people, I think, just kind of wrote it off. It was blocked from the finals by Teamer, Gruel Aggro, Moist Gruel, which also, mm -hmm. speaking of decks, is like nowhere near the top of the popular charts. Mm. That kind of surprises me, to be honest. I, yeah, I thought it would be. I've played against it a little bit more often on Best of One mm -hmm. Ladder, but Best of One Ladder is even more unchanged since Worlds, which what's going on with that? It's still mono white and mono green, you know? Like and mono white's popularity is soaring since September 30th. Mono white has gone from 18% of the meta up to 23 and a half, and it's just climbing. It looks like a beautiful stock chart. Mono green is plummeting. It's like from 16% down to like 13. And the only other thing on the rise is guess what? The new old best of is it dragons has doubled its popularity since worlds. But yeah, nobody's trying these gruel lists. Nobody's trying teamer. Nobody's trying Grixis Dragons. It's, it's, I don't know, man. It's rubbing me kind of funky because I feel like we got exposed to some cool new technology and the ability that some people can innovate on the format. And everyone was like, eh. CGB, it's like I've said time and time again, never underestimate the lack of creativity of the boring average Magic Arena player. I mean, <laughs> they'd still be playing rogues if they brutal, could, man. Brutal. Nobody, they, nobody listening to this cast, to be fair. No one listening to this cast, <laughs> no crafties. by the way. Crafties are creative and talented I mean, and smart. We'd, we'd still be doing the, you know, the age-old mono-red versus rogues matchup uh, if they had it that way. So, I mean, I think that that's it more than anything. You know, people... People build the deck. They like the deck. Maybe they don't have wild cards for any other deck. They have a decent win rate with the deck. And so they just churn and churn and churn and churn away. And meanwhile, you know, us rich kids 
as it were, with a little extra jingle in the pocket. And just like, why are all of these boring? Why can't these kids ever come out to play? Why can't they ever come out to the movies with me? Why can't they ever go and do, you know, VR <laughs> VR dancing or whatever it is? Where that the rich hell kids are like you going right now? <laughs> <laughs> I can't relate to these it's... problems. <laughs> CGB is like, you know, eating caviar and drinking champagne and stuff. He's that next level. <laughs> anyway, but su suffice it to say that, yeah, I think there are just like, in my opinion, it's actually like one of the biggest problems with the arena client in general and the incentives is that it's just funneling the average player towards a very boring way of playing. And that's, it's a whole other thing that we can get into. that's not particularly related to what you were raising there. So apology for the side note, but I really think that that's what, a lot of what's explaining it here. I also wonder if the imminent release of Crimson Vow has something to do with that. I wonder if there are a mm. lot of people who are like, well, I don't really feel like crafting three Leers when we're like so close already to another set, you know? I think that might make sense for some of the beautiful, wonderful, big-brained people listening to this cast who are deeply entrenched. I think most people, like, I, I can't tell you how many people have just said to me, what, there's another set this year? Like, most people don't even know about Crimson Vow, to be honest. Like, that's yeah. that's been the general response to me. To, to better answer your question about, like, where the meta goes and what people should be doing, I think step one is the step that they didn't take that most people aren't taking play these decks you can learn a lot like even if you play best of one you can learn a lot taking a sweet tournament list and tuning it for the meta you expect nobody nobody at worlds expected a 23 and a half percent field of mono white so you can actually really flex some deck building and deck tuning muscles by taking these best of three decks and adjusting it, finding like the cards that are going to help you against a 23.5% mono white field on best of one and uh, grinding with it and figuring out how to beat that deck. That's honestly the kind of thing that keeps me excited. I actually like it when there's a really popular aggro deck that I can target because that's how I make a new deck every day is I grab a new deck and I figure out for years it was how to beat mono red and now it's how to beat mono white. And, mm. you know, I'm totally fine with that. If it stays popular, then I have a target. I think that many people listening to this, pick up some of the sweet decks and see how you can tune them to beat the meta that you expect to face. If it's not going to rotate, exploit it. If if they're just going to keep playing mono white, exploit them. Farm them. Be relentless. It's fun. <laughs> I'm definitely moving forward in the meta. I'm going to continue to do what I like to do. And I think is probably what a lot of these people playing mono green and mono white are doing is that just like, I'm having fun playing this list and I'm winning with this list. So I'm going to do. And so, you know, for me, I'm doing my version of that, which is of course, just trying to squeeze more blood out of an old stone here, staying in the salt eye part of the color pie and uh, just playing lists that I like and, you know, win rate be damned. I am one of those people who enjoys kind of tracking an archetype over time and trying to keep it relevant in the meta and trying to figure out ways to kind of combat the ups and downs. So, you know, for me personally, I've, it's actually kind of ironic. I'm still playing Storm the Festival, still enjoying that card, still, still <laughs> finding ways. Nice. <laughs> I knew you'd actually like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not that I necessarily love that card in particular, but, and I, I think I'm actually going to record a video on this. So stay tuned, crafties. You can go over to the Arena Craft podcast 
official YouTube channel, which doesn't get that much love anymore. No reason not to subscribe to it, though, because when it does get love, it'll be a sweet gameplay video from Arjuna. Sweet. There you go. So I'm going to talk more about this. But basically, if you're wanting to hang out in like the Simic slash Sultai part of the color pie, there are different considerations that you have to take. There are certain cards that have been like banned from the format. Like, for example, Coma is like one of the cards that's just been basically shadow banned from standard. I think that Fading Hope was like, that was like the freaking nail in the coffin for Coma. Like, do you think that Coma will ever get played? with Fading Hope being a far-off main deck in so many lists? I mean, I'm going to run one sometimes because I don't care. But uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, Fading Hope is a brutal one. A brutal Cathar living up yeah. to its name as well. Uh, Elite Spellbinder is another thing that just loves to mess with the Serpent. And yeah, it's hard to find matchups where Coma is good. Against green, it can still go the distance, but yeah. you have to live against green. And, it's, and Cyclone Summoner is frankly better in the same exactly. mana cost. Exactly. So what I've discovered is that you basically like you can't really do the old top end that you could in the format. I think, you know, the top end of the format has been established as the Alrin's Epiphany combo. That's the big mana thing to be doing. You know, your random like Simic seven drop deck or whatever is just not really going to get that. And so instead, what you have to be doing in that particular color combo is exploiting Storm the Festival. It's kind of like the next big end game that's available in these green decks and these green ramp decks. And it's just a mid-range pile. It's all about like being the grindiest, biggest, over the toppiest mid-range deck that you can play. And lo and behold, you do sometimes beat these, these is it lists. And one of the reasons for that is that I've been playing best of three. And uh all of the cards that aren't my learn board cards for divide by zero are tailored to beat these is it lists. I mean I'm sideboarding like 10 to 12 cards in against all of these is it lists. And so, yeah, when you get enough hermits in, when you get like an aggressive Seeker's Chariot plan against them, when you have just enough interaction to kind of stall the game out, yeah, you can clinch wins against these lists. So that's anyway, this is the kind of stuff that I'm focusing on. I'm kind of, you know, brewing around the margins as it were and trying to see if we can put together like some kind of a fun cogent mid-range plan. And you can definitely squeak that kind of stuff out in a format like this and get positive win rates when you're dedicated. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe you can give us a deeper dive on your Saltai after a week of playing it or once your video comes out so we can point people to yeah. it. Could be yeah, fun. Totally. I'm curious how, like, whether you've been playing any more control in this format, <laughs> CGB, and where you think that's positioned. In my spare time, I'm playing a lot of the Esper control. Uh, not Esper, but Esper color pie, like you termed mm -hmm. as the Saltai color pie. I'm playing a lot of Azorius control and Demir control. And I'm still having a Pretty good amount of success. Azorius Control, I've moved mostly away from Lear, but I still have one copy and I'm still running Faithful Mending. So my plan with the Lear is you play it in the mid to late game against aggro decks, mono white and mono green, and it takes over and it's your win con. But against anything is it like, you just discard it and don't even try to play it. Don't even go there because I'm still running like 12 counter spells in my deck, which, you know, against the aggro decks, I'm discarding those to Faithful Mending and trying to make sure I'm casting board wipes and eventually doing Leer. So I love Faithful Mending still. People give me a lot of crap about how much I like that card in Azorius Control because it doesn't get you up cards. But what it does let you do is play these cards that are good in certain matchups and terrible in others. Sunset Revelry, Saw It Come, 
bombing, test of talents, memory deluge, leer, like I said, uh, lots of devastating masteries, lots of doom scars. These are all cards that are great against the perfect opponent, you know, when you and terrible against other opponents. And Faithful Mending lets you get the wrong cards out of the hand and the right cards into the hand at a lot of turns. I'm still winning a lot with Azorius Control, both against Izzet and against the aggro decks. Against Izzet, I have more counter spells. I, I like have the most counter spells in the field. I have two devious cover-ups, and that's my win con plan when I'm not leering. I'm just going to devious them out. I'm just going to counter everything and shuffle them back in. And I've got two or three test of talents. I keep wavering on that number, and I've also got saw it coming. So if I'm patient and I use faithful mending to get rid of basically all the creature interaction, I win the counter wars. So that's been fun. Demir is still more of a leer deck. It still has like three leers, sometimes four. I might even have four in my current list. And it has the <laughs> Celestis. I've learned to absolutely Ooh, love that card. What a great card. Not yeah. good in your Devastating Mastery Azorius deck. Much better in your Demir deck because you're mm -hmm. never going to do anything to interfere with it. And I adore... I adore Divide by Zero and Meat Hook Massacre, dude. Oh, mm -hmm. it feels mm -hmm. so good against the it's aggro the, decks. The Michael J. Flores special there. Oh my gosh, it's so <laughs> much fun. He he loves yeah. Siphon Insight too, and I, I keep on rotating on how much of that I want to run. You do kind of need it in the mirrors, though. It's like the best thing to be doing in a control mirror. The problem so, is, I, I guess with Celestis, you can kind of pitch it, but you don't have the pitch options that Faithful Mending gives you in Azorius. I'm curious about that because, I, you know, you and a lot of very, very skilled players have commented that it's an important card in these control decks in certain situations. Explain to me why that is. I'm still, like, my card evaluation on that card is... Either I'm just wrong or I'm a cynic about it. Sure. But like what makes it so good? It doesn't hit to me as like, and you know, like for example, I don't put it in the tier of like expressive iteration, right? Okay. Tell me what's hidden with that card. So one important thing about it is you don't have a ton of good competition in that spot. Mm, like okay. you, you don't have actual thing twice. Like curate is nothing you're going to get excited about. You don't have a two mana draw two. Okay. Yeah. It just, it's not there. So that's an important part of the equation. If we're going to compare it to things in the, those colors, it's mm -hmm. not that far behind. The card that I found closest to it in testing was Hunt for Specimens because it's mm. a, a little yeah. two for one. And, but yeah. Which that has been like a foundational card in a lot of your builds. Yeah. Yeah. Best. Hunt for Specimens has been in a lot of uh, control decks along the way. It was in my final Demir control list from the last format. And that was the one without treasure and sacrifice stuff. It was literally just make a blocker, go get a card. Mm. So the competition is low. The next thing, most games of Magic, they come down to like your top 15 to 20 cards versus the opponent's top 15 to 20 cards. So you have to evaluate every card on how much it gives you right now for the cost in that spot. Very fast-paced magic is what we're coming from in kind of the Eldraine War of the Spark world. We're graduated from a world there where everything has to be a banger. Like, you have mm -hmm. to be hitting every turn because games are essentially over within a certain period of time. Siphon Insight is a card that's very much, it, it's really only good when it's your 60 versus their 60. We're going to play a game that might go over the course of a long time. And it's not just about my hand or my top X cards versus your top X cards. It's about the eventual, like, if we both see most of our deck, who's going to win? In a situation like that, say you have eight counterspells and I have eight counterspells. Who's going to resolve their threat? The person who gets the most counterspells into their hand first, right? Sure. 
Okay, on that axis, if you manage to siphon insight and assume that you get to cast both sides, so you're going to look at four of their cards, and if one of them is a counterspell, I am now up nine counterspells to your seven. Who's more likely to resolve their thing now? You see how I... And what Michael J. loved about it, and the part that I really want to talk about it, in those matchups, hand size matters because you both try to get to this spot where you have a whole bunch of counter spells or duress or, you know, like all these things that matter. And then you force through the thing that really, really matters. And if you have a counter spell that's not part of your hand that's sitting over there, you know, that's basically like your hand goes a little bit larger than your opponent's. Given that we both have access to a lot of mana, they're going to run out of stuff before you do because mm-hmm. you've got that, you've got that one extra. You got yeah, that one extra. I- it's the exile zone is increasingly becoming like the uh, like the Swiss bank account of magic, <laughs> it right? Really is. <laughs> so it's like the untouchable resource. So your opponent can't go blank you or do any of that other stuff. Yeah. And I think that Siphon Insight, this is a polarizing card. I've received a lot of comments about this, much like Faithless mm-hmm. Mending. I think that people who play a lot of control mirrors get it. And I think everybody else is like, eh. But you have to like mm-hmm. put a lot of hours and you have to like have played long control mirrors. You have to be one of those who's like, if this game takes 45 minutes, I don't care. I'm not losing this mirror. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like like right? if, if you have done a lot of that, you see Siphon Insight in a totally different way from other people who see it as pretty lame use of mana resources to get something you didn't really want. Yeah. And I guess where I see it looking really bad is like when you're playing against mono green and you're just grabbing like forests and random threats off of their deck and it looks pretty bad in your control deck it does it has a lot of bad moments which is why i love having ways to discard it and just not do it in those matchups because then if you run out of things to do later you can just flash it back because you have nothing else to do i i try to keep it in the spot where i was gonna probably just try to get a little card advantage anyway it's like my Mm -hmm. i I don't ever play it in a deck that where i could also play expressive iteration for example which Mm -hmm. was a card that you compared it to at first but i want my four memory deluges and after that i want a way to keep the deck going and have something to do with my mana and Siphon Insight fills that role nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it is just a final thing to note about it. it. Does have that kind of wonderful adventure creature aspect of it, where it fills in your curve nicely. Mm-hmm. You know, gives you a two, gives you a three. Some hands need that. Yeah, right? Some... yeah. As long as you don't mind taking a beating while you do that. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on the matchup, right? We we already kind of yeah. said that it's not what you want to do in aggro, so. Totally. Well, appreciate the update there. So it sounds like both of us are still kind of on our BS, as it were. Let's have some kind of closing thoughts for this iteration of the Met. So, of course, Exhibit A, mono green, mono white, still huge on the ladder. You should be expecting them. You should be ready for them. Uh, Then, of course, you know, various iterations, see what I did there, of the is it lists showing up. You should still be ready for those Two. Outside of that, I don't know, man. I feel like we're just not going to see that much other shakeup in like the top tier of the meta until the next set comes out. I think the rest of people playing decks on the ladder are just going to be, if they're not playing, you know, those kind of big archetypes, they're probably just going to be playing whatever fun thing they thought was fun before Worlds happened. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, the polls are established. There's two really good monocolor aggro decks, and there's one really good over-the-top control-ish combo deck. Anything that you build should have those things in mind, what your plan is going to be against them. And I think that that's what's important. The aggro decks, though, are, if you play best of one, it's like 
37% of the meta is those two monocolored aggro decks and about 11 or 12% is is it doing stuff. So another thing that you can do is you can ignore the is it and build your mid range and control decks. I got to mythic uh, with the video that went up today. It's a Rakdos control mid range dragon deck that I, I won 80 over 80% of my matches with in diamond and it would lose a hundred percent to is it turns it feels like if if mm. like i i beat an is it deck in my video and it's because they made a pretty colossal error they cast galvanic iteration and copied a fading hope i had four creatures on board one was an immerstrom predator the other three were little treasure dorks say two shambling gas and a Kalane. and they for some reason iteration to copy their fading hope their life total wasn't in that much danger and they bounced the predator and one of my shambling guests what's the play Sacrifice the Shambling Gas, exile the iteration. Three turns later, they cast their All Runs Epiphany. Their Epiphany, oh baby. And they cast yeah. another one. Mm. And they cast another one. But they didn't close the game because they were lacking that iteration. And when they passed the turn yeah. back to me, I cast Meat Hook Massacre and their birds went away and the Predator <laughs> finished the job. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, I think that is, that's one of the underappreciated aspects of the iteration combo is that it allows you to get another extra turn without having to spend six or seven mana for it, right? I think what you do with your mana in the free turn is often what decides the game. So, yep, there you go. Uh, Immerstone Predator, my favorite card, just uh, closing out another game of Magic somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it takes miracles sometimes. <laughs> All right, crafties. Well, uh, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Arena Craft Podcast. You can find this show on Spotify. You can also find it on Google Podcasts and iTunes and pretty much anywhere else where podcasts are found. You can watch it on Covert Go Blue's YouTube channel. You can also watch Covert Go Blue stream usually on twitch.tv forward slash Covert Go Blue. He's taken a little break, but that's good for him. Uh, you can watch me stream occasionally at the moment. I haven't been streaming much on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv forward slash podcast. And uh, lastly, I want to thank our Patreons, patrons. Thank you so much for your donations to the show. You help keep the boat afloat. You help keep our editors in business. So we are eternally grateful for you. Thank you Ooh, so much. I got Go something for, for the I got something for the patrons. Uh, many people okay. who watch my channel know that I released a video after the Twitch leak talking about how much money I make from YouTube advertising revenue. I want to yeah. stress that all the ad rev that the ad revenue for these videos is divided and say like it's it goes to the podcast it pays the editors yeah. like any ad revenue from this podcast video gets it goes to editors and expenses and then any leftover gets saved to help the podcast so uh, as a patreon supporter uh, that that's like the two things that we have we have the ad revenue from these youtube videos on the podcast and we have the patreon support and that is what keeps the arena craft podcast going is those two sources so it's still really important if you enjoy the podcast to support on patreon or watch on youtube because both of those things help support the content indeed indeed so yeah we're eternally grateful thanks so much Definitely a motivating factor every week. All right. Well, CGB, uh, looking forward to checking in with you next week. And in the meantime, crafties, stay courageous and go out there and slay. <laughs> <laughs>